Well, good morning. I'm glad you're here. I don't have my display working well, so this will be an interesting PowerPoint opportunity. The other night, uh, we had Will, our son. We had three of our four daughters. We were all at um, the county line. We were having dinner. And over dinner, I was telling them that I was going to be doing our Christmas challenge this morning in class. And I said, what questions do you have about Christmas and how we celebrate it or why we celebrate it or things like that? And I said, if you'll tell me, then I'll try and plug them into the Christmas challenge. And we discussed it. And then after we discussed it, they said, hey, on the way home, can we drive through Prestonwood, look at the lights and sing Christmas songs in the car? I said, absolutely. One of our favorite things to do. And so we drove very slowly. We saved a couple of the prime blocks waiting until our daughter who wasn't with us gets home, which will happen this week. We saved those for her. And uh, uh, we had so much fun. If you haven't been through Prestonwood, they have the 12 Texas days of Christmas. On the first day of Christmas, my partner gave to me a possum in a pine tree. And you can go through each of the yards, and we sang every verse as we did it. So we did that. It got me inspired to build the Christmas challenge this year as much as I could around some Christmas carols, which themselves are a Christmas tradition. So if you're ready, thanks to Bill Young, I have the game show jacket, and we will play the Christmas challenge. How do you do? Are you ready to play the Christmas challenge? No peeking, no looking ahead. Okay, that is me. Okay, well, not really. Um, but that's as close as I can come. Let's start here. Of Bethlehem, how still we see the light above thy deep and dreamless Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Which name or label of Jesus fits his birthplace? B. B. Y'all were in church this morning and you heard Fleming preach about the Migdal, which was the tower of the sheep. Okay, well, that doesn't count. Those are the fields outside Bethlehem. That's not Bethlehem. So, take it off. Now make your choice. D. Those of you who got D are to be applauded. D, the bread of life. Let's understand why. We've got some very wise help today. There is two Hebrew words involved in Bethlehem. We have the Hebrew word Beth, which means house. And Lechem in Hebrew means bread. So Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. How fitting is it that from the house of bread should come the bread of life? One of God's nice little touches. Okay. Are you ready to move on? Question number two. Christ was born on Christmas Day In the holy time of bed Christmas not of Sardinia The baby son of the holy 
the 14th century song Resonet in Laudibus became the English song Christ was born on Christmas Day, which we just heard. By the way, how many of you have heard that song before? Okay, a lot of people. Which month out of these four choices, which month, and you don't have to answer this out loud if you don't want to. All you have to do is applaud the people who get it right. Which month has the greater scriptural support as a possible day of Jesus' birth? A, January, B, February, C, May, D, December. C, it's not January. It's not February. It is C, May. Yes, you got it right. Very good. Hey, for those who got it right. May, how do we do that? First of all, let's be real clear. If we're going to look at this, and we'll put our chalkboard up, why are we even celebrating it on December 25th? The Bible does not tell us what day Jesus was born on. In fact, at the time Jesus was born, most people viewed it evil to celebrate a birthday. So they didn't celebrate anybody's birthday. Moreover, the early church that we read in the book of Acts about and in the epistles, the early church thought Jesus was returning any day. They had no idea that it might be years or decades or even centuries later. Gradually, over time, they started realizing that. Some of the last writings of the New Testament include, for example, uh, 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 the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation, but the epistles of Peter are the last things that, that uh, Peter wrote, and maybe even from a school of Peter. And they recognize and say that the day of the Lord is as a thousand years. And so it, that God hasn't returned yet shouldn't fret anyone. But the early church wasn't worshiping uh, birthdays of anybody, much less uh, uh, celebrating anniversaries like that. So... It doesn't happen until the second century that the church really starts celebrating the birth of Christ. And even then, it starts among some heretical movements at first, the Gnostic movements. So why December 25th? Scholars give us two different ideas. First of all, we know by the fact that they were shepherds in the field, as David alluded to in his sermon this morning, the shepherds generally aren't in the fields except March through November. The winter rain months, they're not. December, January, February are not typically months for the shepherds to be in the field with their flocks. So the fact that the shepherds were in the field in Luke 2 tells us that it's probably March to November. That's why May would be a proper answer among several other choices. But... I still go back to why do we celebrate it on December 25th? There are two main theories. One is the history of religions hypothesis. We're going to come over here in just a moment. One is the history of religions. The other is called the calculation hypothesis. The history of religions hypothesis, I've given you more detail about it in your handout. It basically says that, that the pagans were celebrating the winter solstice. The pagans were celebrating in this era of December, and so it was a time when the church could celebrate as well. A, without getting caught if it were an illegal thing to do, which it was for some times. Or B, uh, just sort of kept them being festive and holiday when everybody else was being. And then C, when you brought your converts in from out of the secular world who were used to having revelry and fun, it gave them a holiday to celebrate. 
that's one theory as to why it lands on December 25th. The second theory, which is more uh, um, modern of sorts, it's only come out in the last 20 years where it's really been published well, but it absolutely makes sense to me. And since it really doesn't matter which one you, you ascribe to, it's not going to change your world or anything else, I go with number two. So let me give you number two. Whoops, let's come over here for this. Here's the calculation hypothesis. And this has got some fascinating stuff if you haven't heard this before. First of all, you need to know that in, in New Testament, not New Testament, in the early church times, 200 A.D., 300 A.D., the church people thought if you were really, really holy, you would die on your birthday. The holier you are, the better odds you're going to die on your birthday. And the reason they came upon this is they would read in Scripture that Moses lived a hundred and however many years and then he died. Noah lived a hundred or, you know, seven hundred or however many years and then he died. And they always tell you how many years people lived. They never added months and days. So the church was thinking they must have died on their birthday. That was the way they were reading it. And so they thought, well, the holy people really die on their birthday. Well, who's the most holy man that ever lived? Obviously, it's Jesus. So they figured he must have died on his birthday. So what they needed to do is figure out when he was born by figuring out when he died. So they figured out when he died, they'd sit there and they'd go, okay, look, we can compute it with Passover and everything else. We think he died March 25th. But you'd be saying, well, if he died March 25th, why wasn't he born March 25th? With Jesus, they figured you don't go to when he was born for the anniversary. You go to nine months earlier at the incarnation. So you do your math. You get nine months earlier. And voila, you're... Now, that didn't work, did it? Nine months, December, March. See, this is the problem I've got not having my notes in front of me. Bottom line is, they're on the PowerPoint on a screen I cannot access right now in front of you. The bottom line is, you, do, you look through the paper, do the math. You've got two choices at this point in time. The calculation hypothesis is either going to give you December 25th or it's going to give you January 6th for birthdays. And the church celebrated both of them, depending upon what part of the church you were from. So this could be a calculation thing that the early church did. It could be just the history of religions as one religion fused into another. We don't know which it is. Scholars debate it. You can debate it over lunch. Doesn't matter. Either way, we know that it's not December 25th. That's a day we just choose to celebrate it at this point out of tradition more so than anything else. Some people say, as a result, you should not be celebrating it. I disagree. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Let's move on. The midnight clear, that song of Where did the idea come from that Christ was born at midnight? That's in that song. You got A. Does it come from celebrating midnight mass? B, some Jewish writing that's not in our Bible? C, they just needed something to rhyme with drawing near? D, this was the incorporation of some Druid tradition. 
No, it's not some Druid tradition. We got it down to two. You got your choice? It's Jewish writings! Okay, let's talk about why. There is, in the Apocrypha, this is not in a, 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 a Protestant Bible. It would be in the Catholic Bible. In the Apocrypha, there is a book. Let's stay on the PowerPoint, please. There is a book called The Book of Wisdom, or The Book of the Wisdom of Solomon, it's also called. And in this book, there is a passage that says, For while gentle silence enveloped all things, and night in its swift course was now half gone, your all-powerful word leapt from heaven. And the word, which became flesh and dwelt among us, the word was deemed to be, uh, in church history, Jesus. So this in church history became an idea for many that Jesus would have been born when night in its swift course was half gone. So we're looking at midnight. It came upon a midnight clear. And that's where the tradition comes from. Let's move on. Are you ready? How you doing so far? Anybody got them all right yet? Come on, clap if you've got them all right or do something so we know. Okay, good. We've already stumped the band. Okay. What year was Christ most likely born? We have 6 to 4 B.C. We have 4 to 1 B.C. We have 0. We have 1 A.D. You got your choice? It's not 4 to 1. 6 to 4 or 0. I'll give you a hint. The Romans didn't have a 0. And use it. It's 6 to 4 B.C. Applause for those who got it right. Now, why, if we go to the... We've talked about this before, but we'll give a little bit more data. You know, we've got A.D. A.D. is for the Latin Anno Domini. Anno Domini, which means the year of the Lord. Or Anno Domini Nostril, the year of our Lord. A.D. Well, you would think Jesus should have been born at what we would consider zero. Or if you don't have a zero, give him one A.D. The year of our Lord one. What happened in the old calendar is, in Western civilization, in the Roman world, time was measured from the foundation of Rome as a city. A.U.C. Ab Urba. From the time of the formation of the city. As time went on, it changed a little bit. But you found yourself in the 500s and the Pope decided he needed a good day for Easter. He wanted to know exactly when Easter Sunday originally was. And he charged a monk named Dionysius Exegus to figure it out. Dionysius Exegus, Latin for Dennis the Short. So Dennis the Short gets charged by the Pope to figure out when Easter was. Dennis the Short, being a diligent monk, goes a step further. He was incensed at the idea that all calendaring should be done by something so pagan as the Roman Empire. And so he decided calendaring should be done by the birth of the Messiah. So in figuring out the date for Easter, he figured out when Jesus was born. He just wasn't very good at math. 
Dennis the Short came up a little short. He put zero in the wrong... Well, he wasn't using zero anyway. He used a one. He put one in the wrong place. Scholars will say it's 6 to 4 B.C. off of the fact that the emperor was... Well, no, you had the king of Herod the Great, who's the one who has the slaughter of the innocents, right? Herod the Great dies in 4 B.C. So Jesus had to have been born sometime before that. Now, there is a little bit of debate among some because Luke says that Quirinius was the governor of Syria at the time Jesus was born. But that's the census that took place, the first census under the rule of the governor Quirinius from Syria. Quirinius doesn't become governor of Syria until around 10 to 12 A.D. So some people say, well, Luke made a mistake. Some people say it was a later birth and Matthew made a mistake. Um, there are a number of different reasons to see that there is no mistake. My son and I were talking about this the other day. And he said, well, what are the different views out there? And I said, well, it all depends. If you want to read scripture and say that there are mistakes in scripture, you can read this and say this is one of them. If you want to read scripture and say there are not mistakes in scripture, which is where I land, then this isn't a mistake in scripture. First of all, the word that's translated that says this took place during the first census, that word first is translated in John and other places to mean before. So it's not a literal statement that this census was taking place during the reign of Quirinius. It could be a census taking place before the reign. It could also be a census that was taking place. You know, we can do a census fairly fast here in America. We can get them done in about a year and a half. But the idea that a census may have been ordered by Augustus and may not have been finished and resulted in a taxation effort for 10 or 12 or 15 years is very reasonable back then as well. There are lots of different theories, lots of different ideas. They're all in there. Uh, you can read them in your paper. Let's keep going. In the mid-1800s, Episcopalian deacon, he later became an Episcopalian priest, but he wasn't at the time he wrote this, John Henry Hopkins wrote, We Three Kings. Now, what does Scripture say about these star followers? A. There were three. B, they were kings. C, they came from the east. D, they knew where they were going. Well, first of all, it doesn't say there were three. Second of all, it doesn't say they were kings. And if you were in church this morning, they didn't know where they were going. They had to stop and ask. They came from the east. That's all we get. How do we get that? Let's go back and look. Let's do this. First, let's look at the story in Matthew 2. The, uh, the story is in Matthew 2, the visit of the wise men. This is the English Standard Version I'm throwing up here. And uh, uh, let's see what we can do with this. Okay, now. 
after Jesus was born, so we know this is after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. That's the Herod that died 4 B.C. Behold, wise men, and the ESV is very polite. They give us a footnote for that, footnote 7. And footnote 7, we can go down and look at the bottom. We'll blow it up for those of you who, like me, are over 50. It is the Greek magi. And we're also told that's the same word that's used, that Greek word magi is used in verse 7 and 16. So now we'll go back up here and keep reading. It says that wise men, or in the Greek magi, came from the east to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who's been born? He's already been born king of the Jews. We saw his star when it rose. We've come to worship him. Now when Herod heard this, he was bothered. He was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. By the way, another tremendous verse to show that the Greek and Hebrew idea of all doesn't mean every single solitary one. Just keep that in your mind. We translate it that way because we don't really have another word to use it. Um, translate um, all with Jerusalem with him. They were assembling the chief priests, the scribes, and Herod asked them, where was Christ to be born? They told him, Bethlehem of Judea. Micah 5.2, you Bethlehem, Ephratah, you who are by no means least among the rulers, from you shall come a ruler. So Herod summoned the wise men secretly, found out what time the star appeared, sent them to Bethlehem and said, hey, go find this kid. And when you found him, come tell me, I would like to go worship him also. They listened to the king. They went on their way. Behold, the star they'd seen when it rose, it went before them. It came to rest over the place where the child was. They saw the star, rejoiced exceedingly. They went into the house. They saw the child. At this point, they were already out of the manger. They saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Opening their treasures, they gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being warmed in a, warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, let's go back to the PowerPoint here for a moment and look at this. So what do we have? The Magi, Magoi in the Greek is the form of the word used here. They were real smart guy from, guys from Persia. They were Medes or Persians who lived their life interpreting dreams and reading signs in the stars. So they're called wise men now in some of the translations, but they were actually a group of people. This is what they did with their life. So the Magi came. We know that. Why do we think there were kings? The early church took that from Isaiah 60, verse 3. Isaiah 60 reads as follows. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. It's talking about Israel. The glory of the Lord rising upon them was surely Jesus. Darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you. His glory will be seen upon you. John said that when Jesus, the word was made flesh, we beheld his glory, the glory of the father. So the church said that the glory of God to be seen upon Israel would have been seen when Jesus was born. And nations shall come to your light. These foreign wise men were from the Medes and the Persians. Kings to the brightness of your rising. 
the rising would have been the birth of Christ. So kings came to the birth of Christ. You look in the New Testament, you've got the visiting magi from the four nations. The early church said, therefore, we know they are kings. Now, why are there three? Some say because they brought three gifts. If you're going to go see the Son of God and you're seeing the King of Kings, Him who is born of God, the only begotten of the Father, wouldn't you show up with a present? Would you be one of the guys who came and didn't have one? If so, wouldn't you borrow one from the guy who brought two? You got gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Three gifts, three kings. But the church found further inspiration from this in Genesis chapter 26. In Genesis chapter 26, there is a time where Abraham's son Isaac is being uh, 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 visited. And he's visited by King Abimelech from Gerar, who came with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Philcol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said, why have you come to see me? You hate me. You sent me away. And the early church said Isaac was a type of Jesus. You'll recall Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. God stopped it and said, I'll sacrifice the real Isaac, the real son instead. Your sacrifice wouldn't do any good, but I appreciate your heart. Okay, so the early church saw that perhaps Isaac was then a type of Christ and he got visited by three. So these must have been three wise men. And that's the reason that we've got the song. That's where it comes from, the whole idea. Three from the gifts and from the Genesis passage. Okay, enough of that. Let's the move on. The day of Christmas my true love brought to me. Twelve bulls, a bellowing, eleven lords, a leaping ten ladies, dancing nine maids, a milking eight boys, a singing seven swans, a swimming six geese, a laying five golden rings. I should have made the ring gold. <laughs> uh, thank you, Burl Ives. Um... 12 days of Christmas. Have you gotten the email from Mark Craver that tells you what those are about yet? Uh, I'm just joking. I don't know if Mark sent it around. I've gotten it from 80 gazillion people. Um, in the 12 days of Christmas, we sing of gifts given on each day. What are the 12 days and where did they come from? What are the gifts? A, Roman calendar. B, flight into Egypt. C, visit of the Magi. D, medieval gift traditions. It is not the Roman calendar. It is not a medieval gift tradition, and it is not the flight into Egypt. Visit of the Magi, if you got it right. Where do we get that from? How does that come about? Do I have a chalkboard? I have a chalkboard. First of all, recognize the internet rumor. It is false. Those lyrics do not, as written, mean uh, let's see, what are they? On the first day of Christmas, a partridge in a pear tree, that is not Jesus the one. On the second day of Christmas, that's not the, uh, my true love gave to me two turtle doves, that's not the old and the new testament. Third day of Christmas is not the Trinity. Fourth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me four calling birds. The four gospels, heh <laughs> Okay, four calling birds isn't even what the original song said. It said collie birds, C-O-L-L-Y. That's an old British expression for a blackbird or a crow. Okay? 
So those were never the four Gospels. That whole thing was concocted by an English professor in 1979. He published it, but he readily says in the publication, which I've cited to you in the paper, that this is what it means to him. That's not the original lyrics you'll find in the Oxford book of nursery rhymes. Because it was originally came about from France into England hundreds of years ago as one of those games where one person says something and the next person has to add to it and remember what the first one said. We played a variation called I Looked in Grandma's Trunk. I've not yet put it to music. It's an internet rumor. So what are the 12 days of Christmas? December 25th, that's Christmas. January 6th was the visit of the Magi who interpreted dreams and red stars. So the church computed. December 25th to January 6th, what's that? The 12 days of Christmas. So in an Orthodox church or in a, in a church that celebrates the entire 12 days of Christmas, you celebrate through that season, then you take down your decorations. For what it's worth. 12 days of Christmas. Let's move on. Away in a manger, no crib for his bed. A little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet Y'all recognize the singer? Johnny Cash, very good. Okay, who started Christmas nativity scenes? We got Pope Gregory the Great, St. Francis of Assisi, Martin Luther, or George Washington. It wasn't Pope Gregory the Great. It wasn't George Washington. Francis of Assisi, very good. In fact, the, uh, Francis's biography was written by one of his followers, a guy named Thomas of Solano. And so it was written right after the death of St. Francis and about three years after his death. And if you ever want to read it, it's fascinating. He's got chapter 30 in his first book, the manger he made in celebration of the Lord's birthday. And, and what he really wanted to do is he wanted to focus in on exactly what it was like to experience being at the nativity. And no one had done it before. So his highest aim, this is Francis's, his foremost desire, his greatest proposal was to pay heed to the Holy Gospel in all things and through all things to follow the teaching of our Lord Jesus, to retrace his footsteps completely with all vigilance and zeal, the desire of his soul and the fervor of his heart. And so he did. And he put together the manger scene. He said... Look at this. I really love this. Hurry before me. Carefully make ready the things I tell you. He didn't like physically get the animals and all that. He told guys to do it. I wish to enact the memory of that babe who was born in Bethlehem to see as much as is possible with my own bodily eyes the discomfort of his infant needs. How he lay in a manger. How with an ox and an ass standing by he rested on hay. So the man did it, and it was done. And there, look what, this is what Francis said. He said, there simplicity is given a place of honor. Poverty is exalted. Humility is commended. And Greccio is where they did this. Uh, so out of Greccio is made a new Bethlehem. 
So since that time, by the way, St. Francis and his followers were also the ones who established caroling as a tradition because they would go through all the towns and they would carol over this. Uh, if we go back to the PowerPoint. So when did commercialism make itself known in Christmas? When did commercialism become so rampant that it can move you to disgust even? A, Middle Age plays in France. B, 19th century German opera. C, 1930s radio shows. Or 1940s Macy parades. Are you ready? It is A. Middle Age plays in France. We can go back to the 1200s and find body opportunities in Christmas plays to sell all sorts of things, to do all sorts of things. It was absolutely horrendous. And it caused the reformers in the Reformation movement to turn away from, in some ways, celebrating Christmas. Uh, in, in fact... Uh, well, we'll get to that in a minute. Let's don't get a little carried away here. Um, 11th century France. In England in 1647, they banned Christmas altogether because of this. In Massachusetts, where the Puritans settled in 1659, they banned Christmas. And it was banned for uh, uh, until I think 1681 or something like that. Um, in the 1800s in America, it was already a vibrant market. Macy's started, they, they were putting Santa Clauses in the stores a long time ago. Um, it's an amazing story. So, yes, crass commercialism's there. It's been around for a long time. And I'm not sure we'll get rid of it, except maybe in our individual homes. Yeah, you better watch out, you better not try. Very good. Where did St. Nick, if he's coming to town, where's he coming from? Where did he live? The real St. Nick. New York, Amsterdam, the North Pole, or Turkey? There was a St. Nick in the 300s, St. Nicholas of Mira. The stories about him are legends, but they're legends that were created fairly early in his, his existence. They've sort of been added to and all. St. Nicholas um, uh, was born into a very wealthy family, but he used his money to try and help the poor. There was a man that St. Nicholas knew who had three daughters. They were um, a, a family in poverty, so the fellow didn't have money to get his daughters married off. So what he was going to do is they were going to have to become prostitutes. What Nicholas did, St. Nicholas did, is he took a bag of money and he opened a window and he put it in there. And that was for one daughter's dowry. Then he did it for a second daughter. Did it for a third daughter, but the man caught him and he made the man promise he wouldn't tell anybody. Now, some of the rumors say that the third time the window was locked. And so he had to throw it down the uh, opening in the ceiling, where the, in the roof, for the smoke to come out. But the idea of a sock being filled with something and the idea of somebody coming through the chimney with gifts all sprung out 
of legends associated with St. Nicholas. My favorite St. Nicholas story is that during the Council of Nicaea, which was the big debate over the divinity of Jesus, one of the representatives of the church was uh, uh, St. Nicholas, the Bishop of Myra. And he confronted Arius, the man who denied the divinity of Christ, and he punched him. Okay, St. Nicholas became the patron saint of which city? Jerusalem, London, Lubbock, the hub of the plains, or New York? <laughs> it is New York. Supposedly, well, let me tell you this. St. Nicholas is not only the patron saint, if you will, of Christmas, but he's also the patron saint of, uh, of uh, uh, sailors. There are more churches built with St. Nicholas's name on it than there are anybody else except Mary and Jesus. Uh, St. Nicholas, the, the, supposedly the Dutch sailors who first sailed into what became New Amsterdam, later New York, they, were, they had on the bow of their ship St. Nicholas. And, and uh, there are other ideas and rumors and concocted stories of how he appeared to people and told them where to settle in New Amsterdam and all the rest. By the time you get into the 1800s, New York was in a horrible, wretched time where there was a lot of fighting among the kids. There was gang warfare. There was civil unrest, And the, the town, some noted townspeople decided one thing that might help is if everybody just celebrated the feast day of St. Nicholas, which was December 6th, because he was this nice, wonderful, good, loving caring man. So, so they started celebrating it. Within time, Clark Clement Moore, or maybe not, someone else, you can read that discussion in the paper, no time to cover it here, wrote, "'Twas the night before Christmas in the 1820s in New York City. That hit the Troy newspaper the next year. Everything took off from there. But New York, their patron saint is St. Nicholas." <laughs> Giddy Wells got a hit in 1962 with old Chris Kringle. Who is responsible for Chris Kringle? Martin Luther, John Calvin, Henry VII, or Hollywood? Chris Kringle. It's not Henry VII. It's not Hollywood. And it's not Martin Luther. Martin Luther was upset that the church was celebrating such pagan ways and such pagan holidays. He didn't like the concept. By the way, Henry VII did do Father Christmas. Did not like the concept of, of what was going on. So he set up Chris Kringle. Chris Kringle. Hmm. Let's do our old German. Chris Kindle in old German is what it was. Chris means Christ. Kindle means child in old German. The Christ child, and it was the Christ child who gave gifts, as God had given us gifts through the Christ child. And that becomes Kris Kringle, which over time has just melded into being the same as St. Nick and Santa Claus. Let's keep going. Now, do not be deceived by the fact that that is John Calvin rocking around the Christmas tree. It does not mean it's the right answer. Could be, could not be. Legend associates Christmas trees, rightly or wrongly, with whom? Martin Luther, John Calvin, Henry VII, or Hollywood? Well, you know it's not Hollywood. You know it's not Henry VII. Is it or isn't it John Calvin? It's not. It's Martin Luther. 
Now, the odds are it's not true, but the legend says Luther was walking home on Christmas Eve one night and he saw this tree that was all lit up and he thought how beautiful and what a wonderful representation of Jesus who is the light of the world and always green. We do know that trees themselves most likely came from Germany and German celebrations. The song, O Tannenbaum, O Tannenbaum, Tannenbaum from the German for fir tree. And uh, there were, we have songs about evergreen trees that were seasonal Christmas songs that date back over 500 years in Germany, well before Martin Luther even, several hundred years before him. So uh, um, uh, they were brought over to America, probably by the Germans. By the 1800s in America, we read about them, and they're pretty much everywhere here. What war had a significant peace movement on Christmas Eve? The Revolutionary War, the Civil War, World War I, or World War II? It's not the Revolutionary War. And it's not World War II. It is World War II. This was a time of trench warfare. And on the Western Front, the Germans were in trenches and the, the, the Allies were in trenches. And the trenches had separated between them what was called no man's land. And the technology just wasn't there to do anything about it. So they're there in these wet, stinking, squalid trenches. They can't get up and run back very well because they get shot at. They certainly can't charge and do anything very well to the other guys. They get killed. And so they're entrenched. Life is terrible. It stinks. These trenches serve as their, their uh, 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 what would you call one of those places where you use a restroom? Latrines. It's a military word. These are their latrines. I mean, it's just a horrid, fetid area. Lots of over a million people have died by 1914 when this story takes place, but the story is incredibly well documented by sources both from Germany and from France and, so the, and England. And so what happened is somebody brought the Germans a little Christmas tree. The Germans lit the tree on a night of Christmas Eve when a cold front had blown in and it brought some frost, which actually was a relief because it stopped the mud a little bit. And so the cold front blows in, the Germans start lighting the trees. The Brits see the lights and think they're getting ready for an assault. And so the Brits all get their guns loaded and, you know, getting ready for the Germans to try and break through the trenches and to come across no man's land. And then they start hearing Christmas carols. And nobody knows exactly which side did it, but one side or the other got out of their trenches. They met in no man's land all along the trench warfare. And through the night of Christmas Eve, they gave each other gifts. They sang together. They shared their food. They took time to jointly bury their dead that were out in no man's land. The bosses back home were very upset. The German generals said it'll be treason if it ever happens again. The allied British generals uh, uh, did their own appropriate frowning as well. It didn't really happen again, but it was an amazing Rudolph moment. the red-nosed reindeer had a very shiny nose. So where does Rudolph come from? Sears and Roebuck? Norway? Montgomery Wards or Gene Autry? Well, it's not Sears and it's not Norway or Gene Autry. It's Montgomery Wards, written entirely just to get people to come. They handed out tons of books. They got Gene Autry to sing it. And Gene Autry didn't want to. He had written his own Christmas song, Nellie the Long-Eared Donkey. He, 
I'm not making, you can't make this stuff up. Gene Autry thought Nellie the Long-Eared Donkey would be a better hit. He was wrong. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, it became a massive hit. A TV show followed. Books followed. Which of the following has not been a regular image of Santa Claus? Red coat with fur, blue coat, chubby, thin. Eh, they've all been images of him. He's had blue coats, he's been thin, he's been a short gnome, he's been fat and jolly. The guy we see generally comes from Thomas Nast. Thomas was a, uh, a political cartoonist in the late 1800s who started drawing Santa, and he drew him fat and jolly. With he, he got the fur on the coat from the Astors, these rich people in New York. He put him in the North Pole because he was apolitical, and he thought that way no country can claim him. He came up with the North Pole. And... Uh, uh, that's also the guy who came up with the drawings of the donkey and the elephant for the political parties. Same guy. Points for home. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. I love this passage. It's John 1.14. Some books say John doesn't record the nativity. Well, he doesn't show us Bethlehem as Bethlehem. John wrote his gospel 50 years, 40 years after the others had been written and were well known. But he does let us know the core. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory. There's simplicity, there's poverty, and there's humility in the nativity scene. And if we go through Christmas with just the joy and the fun, if we go through Christmas with just the gifts and our own family traditions... And we don't pause and pray that God will give us a real sense of simplicity and poverty and humility. Even in the midst of the grandiose 21st century American Christmas, we're missing out. We're missing out. Point for home number two. One person esteems one day as another. Another person esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who doesn't, doesn't. Either way, you do it to the glory of God. That's what Paul says in Romans 14. Some people don't celebrate Christmas as a time of Jesus' birth. They think it's wrong to because the Bible doesn't tell us when Jesus was born. But if anything, it indicates it's a different time. doesn't matter. Whatever you're doing in this season, the point is you do it to the glory of God. Don't judge someone else for what they're doing within your home, within your life, within your family. Any day, you want to recognize this as a day where you spend time focusing and gathering the, the attention of the world on Jesus, incarnate God, then do it and do it to the glory of God. Don't judge someone else. Last point for home. Let's use this season to seek God. Last point from home. Uh, very important point for me, comes off of some of what Dr. Fleming touched on in his sermon today. Wise men from the east, they came to Jerusalem, they asked Herod, where is he? Herod doesn't know. He calls in the chief priests and the scribes. As David said, they didn't have to go home and check their Bible concordances or get on the internet. They knew immediately to quote Micah, Bethlehem, Ephratah of Judea. That's where the Messiah would be born. They told him in Bethlehem, and do you know what happened? The scribes and the chief priests, who were the only people who knew where Jesus was going to be born, after telling everybody who needed to know to go see him or kill him, they went home. 
If there is one time on this earth and one place on this earth I could choose to go in a time machine, I don't think I could handle the crucifixion. I know I would have trouble at the empty tomb. I'm not sure I'd live through that because I think it'd just be so overwhelming to me. If I could pick one moment to go to, I think I'd want to go to Bethlehem. The only people who knew what was going on there in that vignette, that encounter between the wise men, Herod, and the, the, the chief priests and the scribes, they just went home. So what do we do with our chance to encounter Jesus? Because we don't have Bethlehem in front of us. But every one of us has a chance to encounter Jesus. I pray to God that none of us just go home. I wish you a very Merry Christmas. I hope you've enjoyed the Christmas challenge. Next year, I look forward to class again. God bless you all. Steve, you've asked for time.